Hey, good morning, folks, and welcome to church. My name is Dan, and I get to serve as the Director of Communications here at Redemption. I have a few longer announcements for you, but we can do this. Let's roll out. Under the current provincial lockdown orders, we're required to have no more than 15% room capacity, which means we can only have about 100 people in the worship center per service. This means we're asking each of you to please only register for one out of every four weekends to give everyone a chance to come. So now it's absolutely essential that if you register, please show up. Or if something comes up and you can't make it, just let us know. Due to the new room capacity limitations, we've had to suspend kids ministry, so we would encourage families with younger children to just hunker down and watch from home. We've now enabled a simulcast registration. Instead of a wait list, you can now reserve a seat in our on-site simulcast room. If seats become available in the worship center, you may be offered the chance to move up. However, we don't anticipate this happening very often, so please reserve these seats knowing that in all likelihood, you will be watching from the simulcast room. Guys, we have come so far since winter, and with the warm spring and summer weather here, we're looking for people willing to serve on our lawn care team. Hour by hour, day by day, this lawn keeps growing. And currently, we have three to four people who do this each week throughout the summer. We're hoping to have as many teams of three to four people as possible who can serve in a rotation so the same group won't get burned out serving every single week. Maybe you have your own team in mind already or want to serve as a family or a small group. The equipment and the tools are provided. We just need your helping hands. So email us right here if you're interested. We're so grateful today to be able to celebrate with several individuals who are being baptized. Praise the Lord for how He is working in the lives of so many people. And if you're a new follower of Christ, or have been for some time but just haven't been baptized, please take this seriously. We would encourage you to sign up for our next baptism class, where you'll learn what baptism is, why we should be baptized, and much more. So sign up for the class, which is happening on Thursday, April 29th. To learn more, head to this link right here. Thank you, my friends. Enjoy the service, and as always, God bless. Good morning, church. Last week we celebrated Easter together, but the, the beauty is every single Sunday, every time we gather together, we get to celebrate our Savior's resurrection. Amen? It's good to be together both here and online. Let's stand together. Let's stand and worship our Lord together. Stronger, the King of Glory. 
is risen, he is risen, he's alive. Yes, we believe. Father, thank you for the joy of being able to celebrate here in person and online every single time we gather together that you are alive. We believe the truth. Thank you, Jesus, our Savior, our Master, our King, our everything. Receive our worship this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Church, you may be seated. Good morning, Redemption Church. Uh, for the few who are here, and the many who are online with us, it's our privilege to have some baptisms uh, in this service and our next service. And I just want to make sure everybody understands who's here or watching what baptism is all about. Uh, many people think of baptism as some part of salvation. It's a sacrament. It's in some way uh, saving people or helping to save them. It is not any of that. Baptism is the first step of obedience after one comes to faith in Jesus Christ. So those who are getting baptized have prior to this time have come to see their sin before their creator God. They've come to understand because of their sin they're under condemnation, they're under the wrath of God. They're in the act of perishing. They're on their way to eternity in hell. They can't do anything to change that, to undo what they've done, to change their state. But then they have understood the good news of the gospel, that God himself entered into his creation, took on the form of man. He lived a perfect life as Jesus did. He fully obeyed and, and fulfilled the law. He died on the cross as we remembered last Friday. He took our place. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And he uh, bore the punishment for our sin. He paid for it fully on the cross. His last words were, it is finished. Not I am finished, it is finished. The payment for sin is complete. The, the wrath of God, the justice of God is satisfied. And then he gave up his life. Then he rose three days later, giving proof positive that he was victorious over both sin and the result of sin is death. And he conquered both. And so these folks who are getting baptized have already come to that place, repenting and confessing their faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in him alone for their salvation. What they're doing here is a symbol, if you will. It's an outward demonstration, a public demonstration of what's already happened inwardly in their heart and life. And so by going down into the water, it symbolizes they have died to sin and self. Coming back out of the water symbolizes they've been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. And so we love to do this as a church. Uh, it's part of the obedience. It's part of one of the elements that we would practice along with communion of one of the ordinances of the church. And so just be praying for these folks as they come and give testimony, as they glorify their Savior by giving public testimony in their words as they share with you and also in this act of baptism. And our sort of tradition, and there's only a hundred or so of you here, uh, so it's really on you when they come up out of the water of baptism. We tend to clear and chat clap and cheer and you can make whatever noise we want to celebrate together because we believe that, that there's a celebration in heaven as well as they're stepping out in obedience and glorifying their savior so let's have the first one hi my name is Brittany I have been attending Redemption for two years now. It has been a true blessing. Coming from a family who don't believe in God or have their own version of God, I struggled to stay consistent with my faith over the years. I thank God for taking me down so many paths that have led me to where I am today. 
As a baby, I was christened in a Catholic church, but never spoke of God in the home. I never once opened the Bible. I started my childhood going to public school, but when I was bullied, my parents switched me to Catholic school because they thought Catholic kids couldn't be bullies, where they were wrong. This caused me to have a distorted image of who God was. He was only there for when things went wrong, when prayer didn't work, cursing his name and blasphemy was okay. He wasn't real, so all conversation of faith stopped. However, God was hard at work within me through those years, putting people in my life that played a huge part in where my faith is today. In my early 20s, I was submerged in sin and self-righteousness. I had gone through abuse and many different relationships within many different ways. My heart became hardened and I was constantly looking for salvation in the wrong place. I was searching for love and belonging on the wide, easy path of sin that was leading me nowhere instead of the narrow, hard path that leads to salvation in Christ. It wasn't until a few years ago that I truly felt God working in my life. He had led me to people who love him and spoke the gospel in a way that little by little I started to understand. With this, I came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. I prayed to him, leaving my fears and past transgressions with him, knowing my soul has been saved because Jesus died for my sins. I stopped following my own plans for life and started following him. For the first time ever, I felt Jesus in my heart, his overwhelming love. Ephesians 4:31 to 32 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. The relationships with my family have been broken for many years, and I have been quick to anger for reasons that I thought were justified at the time. God has been speaking to me through the sermons that Pastor Norm has been preaching, and with the Women's Bible Study Group, hearing the story of Joseph, of the importance of loving my family, even if though I don't feel they deserve it. Who am I to deny them love and forgiveness when the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings laid his life down for a sinner like me? I feel God at work in me, chipping away at my hardened heart, filling me with the Holy Spirit and guiding me through, through forgiveness as I slowly rebuild broken relationships within my family. Love is bestowed upon us through God's grace. I know that I have a lot more maturing to do and a lot more gospel to read but I am not afraid of my future anymore. God loves me and I love him. I want to outwardly express my love for God by getting baptized today. I want to declare to the world that I am dead to sin and alive in Christ. Galatians 2.20 reads, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Brittany, based on your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, it's my privilege and joy to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buenos dias. Good morning. 
My name is Jonathan Amaya. I was blessed to have parents that are believers and raised me in a Christian household. At an early age, I was taught in Sunday school about Bible stories and God's commandments. When I was a child, I made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and his payment for my sins. As I got older, I became more independent with my thoughts and beliefs. I was surrounded by worldly things which captivated me. I was baptized as a teenager, but was not sure where I was with Christ at that point. I never lost faith, but I distanced myself from God. Going through college, I took every chance I could to go to a party or meet up with friends downtown. During this time, I was lost. I didn't have God as a focal point and had difficulties in my life during that period. I was scared to open my heart entirely to God because I didn't want to disappoint him because of my lifestyle. What helped me get through those hard times was praying and reading the Bible. Proverbs 28:14 says, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. I encourage you to never give up, surrender, to God because our Lord will not fail you. The Lord has shown me a new perspective on life by giving me many blessings and an amazing church. I want to worship God as Mark 12, 30 to 32 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength you shall love your, your neighbor sorry as yourself if you surrender to God you will feel and know his everlasting love I'm getting baptized today to obey his command as my heart is not fully set on him. Johnny, bless you for your heart for Christ and based on your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, it's my privilege and joy to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. My name is Sarah, and this is my testimony. I was raised as a child without any religious or spiritual background. I had no knowledge whatsoever of who my creator was. I'd come to believe that there was a God, but I didn't know who he was. It wasn't until a couple of years ago that I started to feel like something was tugging on me, that I needed to find my savior. Though I was happy in my life, with my family, friends, and my boyfriend, I still felt as though there was a missing piece to my puzzle. At the time, I had no idea what that was, as I'm sure many others have experienced. All of us at some point have questioned our purpose in life, and I knew I needed to find mine. Like many lost individuals out there, I contemplated seeking new age beliefs, as it was what everyone else around me seemed to be seeking. But thankfully, there was something in me that knew I shouldn't go down that path, which enabled me to turn away from what would have been dishonoring to God. 
I remember having discussions about spiritual beliefs with my boyfriend, Noah, who's getting baptized with me today. I didn't understand the relationship he had with God until I became a part of it. He shared the gospel with me and I was convicted of my sin. Christ began working in my heart, placing guilt on my conscience for committing sin. I knew I needed a savior. While I was lost, I would struggle with excessive worrying and overthinking. This led me to be anxious about many things in my life, especially in my university degree. Last fall was the hardest I had endured, considering we were online due to COVID-19, and the workloads were excessive and difficult to keep up with. It was around November when Noah and I began attending Redemption. At the beginning, I had no idea what was going on, but as weeks passed, my, we my eyes began to open and my ears began to listen. Around the time when I was struggling with school, Matthew 6, 25 to 34 was the focus of that Sunday's sermon. Matthew 6:34 says, so don't worry about tomorrow, for, tomorrow's, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. While this may be simple, I took it to heart to listen. This was the moment I knew to transfer my faith from myself to the Savior. I repented of my sin and put my faith in Jesus. Ever since, I've had confidence that I was where I was needed to be. Now I need to commemorate it by being baptized. I found my missing puzzle piece. Thank you so much, Sarah, for sharing that. And based on your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, it's my privilege and joy to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Very emotional. <laughs> um, hi, my name is Noah, and uh, this is my testimony. I grew up with uh, two loving parents and one younger brother. God blessed me in that I was born into a Christian home with parents who taught me good values. When I was younger, I remember loving worship at church and being with my family. I didn't understand the sermons to their full extent, but at the age of 11, I put my faith in Christ at that time. I didn't understand the full scope of Jesus' sacrifice, but I knew I was a sinner and I didn't want to die and go to hell. I knew I couldn't do it on my own. I needed a savior. Time went on, and I heard the news that my parents were separating. This tore at my heart, along with many other things in my life. A new school, and eventually going into high school and new friends. I got into drugs and alcohol, thinking I could make friends better. I was a self-professed Christian, but I was not living the life Christ calls us to live. Sin slowly seeped into my life, and I drifted away from the Lord. But Jesus never forgot about me. He was always there. As God was working in my heart, the news of COVID seemed to capture the world, but the only thing on my mind was Christ. With all the time on my hands, my interest was piqued, and I started to watch sermons online, answering questions about salvation and loving Christ. I came to the realization of my own fault in my faith and how far I had drifted. I remember going on my knees and pleading with God, feeling whole again with peace in my life, knowing the mercy and grace God gives. Now I see everything from a whole different perspective. And God has given me a new passion, a passion to share the gospel with others, give to those in need, and lead a life filled with the Spirit of God in everything I do. I hope to be a leader and reflect Christ in my life. As Paul said in Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Today I'm getting baptized, and I'll tell you why. First, because God commands us to. Second, because Jesus was baptized in water. And third, to share my story with others so they can find the hope in Christ and turn to him. 
As Ephesians 4, 17, 24 says, Because of Jesus, I have put off my old self, which was corrupted by lust and deception, and I'm walking in newness of life. Praise God. Noah, I'm so excited for you and Sarah. Based on your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, it's my privilege and joy to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. My name is Amanda. Before I received Christ, I grew up going to a Christian school and church all my life, but I didn't have the direction I needed to seek Christ, and I wasn't taught my need for Him. My family wasn't the status quo, so I didn't really fit in. I really struggled with my identity. I wanted to feel loved, so I sought it in all the wrong places. As a teen, I hated God, my family, and myself. I lived for this world, and I wanted to feel whole. It wasn't until I hit rock bottom, after many failed relationships, that I felt a need to truly find God. God showed me my sin and my huge need for him. I repented, and I put my faith in Christ for my salvation. But as I realized my need, I was still a stagnant Christian, stuck in legalism. I, wasn't, I was missing a zeal for the Lord, I loved him, but I wasn't living, willing to live for him. I was a checklist Christian. I went to church twice on Sunday. I went to catechism. I loved God. I read the Bible and prayed at the dinner table. But God doesn't save us by a works-based salvation. He saves us because of our faith in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sins. When I left my legalistic ways, not only did I know and love God more, but I saw how badly I needed a savior. Romans 5 verse 10 says, For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? I'm getting baptized today because I've repented of my sin, turned from my old life, and I live solely for him. I don't have to worry about my works being good enough or if he'll accept me into heaven by being a good person. I am assured of salvation by his death on the cross for me and his resurrection. I am now free in my new life in Christ. He has fully paid my debt. I am constantly fighting against my sin and turning to Christ for strength. I am loved by my heavenly father. I'm a daughter of the king. I know my identity is in him. I want to serve his church and love others like he calls me to. I will use my God-given gifts and talents to further his kingdom. I want to raise my girls in the knowledge and instruction of the Lord with God's help. I pray for our marriage to be rooted in Christ as our foundation. I long to know him more and more each and every day through prayer and the reading of his word. Amanda, based on your profession of faith, it is my pleasure to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Hi, my name is Mike. Growing up, I had a great childhood raised by great parents. We were Roman Catholic, so I knew about Jesus and other Bible stories, but I never truly grasped how deeply in sin I was. I figured that because I knew who Jesus was, went to church more than other people that I knew, and was considered a good person, that I was easily headed to heaven. I met a Christian girl I wanted to date, but she wasn't willing to compromise her faith. I wish I could say I jumped right in, but I fought and rejected God and tried to delay casting off my old life of living for myself as long as I could. But God, in his great patience, kept calling me until I couldn't resist him anymore. I finally confessed my sin and made a profession of faith in Christ and started making some changes in my life. However, I fell into a pattern of legalism. I thought, because I rolled out of bed every Sunday morning, that I was, again, easily headed to heaven. I was a Sunday Christian, went to church on Sunday, but lived as a man of the world during the week. I've been thinking a lot about Matthew 7, verses 22 to 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I had checked off all the boxes, but I never truly had a heart for Jesus. It wasn't until my wife, that girl that wasn't willing to compromise her faith, and I had our first daughter, that I really prayed about how I wanted to raise our children and where my heart was really at with God. Diving deeper into the word, I truly came to understand that what I did isn't what saved me. It was Jesus' death and resurrection, nothing that I could have done. Now, I have true joy in Christ. I love coming to church every Sunday in fellowship with my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I find true joy in serving the Lord with my church family. I am getting baptized today to publicly profess my faith in Jesus and to fulfill, to fulfill the biblical command of repent and be baptized. I think it is a great privilege that I can stand up here today and share my story with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Based on your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, it's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is good, amen? Come on, let's all stand together. Let's stand. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your grace, our hope.
towards us, and that in fact by your immense mercy that we are born into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. I pray that you would be working in our hearts, God, for we are not people without hope. We have a hope that is certain, that is assured because of you and what you have done. Lord, would you give us hearts that are receptive as we open your word that we would be living in the hope that is given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, you may be seated. There you are. And a warm good morning to those of you at home who are joining us online. It's great to be with you. We have sung the gospel. We have seen the gospel in living color, haven't we? All those baptisms. And now together we are going to hear the gospel. And so I invite you to take God's word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. This is where obviously we will be today, and Lord willing, this is where we will be next Sunday, 
and the Sunday after that, Matthew chapter 10. And I want to set the context by presenting to you three scenarios, all right? Uh, I don't have anyone here in mind. I don't know you well enough, so I don't have anyone here in mind as I articulate, express these three scenarios. Any similarity between what I say and your current circumstances is purely coincidental or perhaps uh, providential. And so here are these three scenarios now as we set the stage, set the context for Matthew chapter 10. Scenario number one. Your neighbor contends that there is no proof for God. All right? He's been reading Richard Dawkins, someone like that, and he thinks you are crazy for believing in something for which there is no, in his language, empirical evidence. And he uses the word science like a club to bludgeon you and to beat you down. And uh, whenever he's around, you just, you turn into jelly and you cower in silence. All right, that's scenario number one. Here's scenario number two. Your cousin dismisses Christian beliefs about gender as abominable prejudice. He thinks your views on marriage, manhood, and womanhood are archaic and reflect the fact that you are narrow-minded if not downright prejudice toward those who just happen to be different from you. And he brings this up every opportunity he can. And you're crushed because he's your favorite cousin. And you are crushed, absolutely crushed by his disapproval of you. Here is scenario number three. Your university professor sociology, let's say, University of Western Ontario, I don't know, purely hypothetical, espouses radical skepticism. And what she means by radical skepticism is this, there is no absolute truth. There are no meta-narratives. There is no rational explanation for the cosmos our world for life itself, but uh, truth, beauty, morality, these are culturally defined. Morality is not determined by divine revelation. Morality is determined by personal choice. And you're very self-conscious in her classroom, and you are certain, you are certain every time she furrows her brow, she's thinking of you. She has you in her crosshairs, and you're just an anxious mess in her classroom. All right, you got it? Three scenarios, and I could easily add to that list. I want to run through three things with you. What is the problem in each of these scenarios? What's going on? What's the problem? What is the cause, and what is the remedy? You got it? Problem, cause, remedy. The problem is this. It's called the fear of man. The problem in each of those examples, each of those scenarios, let's stick with that word, is simply this, the fear of man. 
The fear of rejection. Who wants to be rejected? The fear of being ridiculed, belittled, ostracized. That's a very unpleasant experience. No one wants to go through that. But in each of these scenarios, that fear of man has got the better of the individual. And we read in Proverbs 29, verse 25, that the fear of man lays a snare. That's the problem, the fear of man. What is the cause of the problem? The cause is this. We fear man. We fear people when we see them as bigger than God. It is an idolatry problem. You see, we, those whom we fear most are those whose approval we want most. Think it through, brother. Think it through, sister. Those who we fear most are those whose approval we want most. Well, if I want my neighbor's approval, if I want my cousin's approval, if I want my professor's approval more than God's approval, I will be overcome, inundated with the fear of man, and it will crush me, it will influence me, it will dictate how I think, what I say, how I behave. And what is the remedy then for this problem? The remedy in the words of Ed Welch is as follows. The first task in escaping the snare, because it is a snare, it is a trap. The first task in escaping the snare of the fear of man is to know that God is awesome and glorious not other people. That's our business as we turn to Matthew chapter 10. Have you got it? There is a problem. There is a cause. There is a remedy. You can apply it to your life circumstances. You can apply it to whatever situation you're going through currently. We turn to Matthew 10 now. We have those words from Ed Welch clearly in the front of our minds. The first task in escaping the snare of the fear of man is to know that God is awesome and glorious, not other people. And that's what the Lord Jesus Himself teaches us in the 10th chapter of Matthew's gospel account. Turn with me there now if you haven't found it already. I'm going to pick it up from verse 35 of chapter 9, which sets the context, and I'm going to read right through this sermon. I am fully convinced that when we read and we hear the Word of God, we are actually hearing the voice of God Himself. And so I make no apology for this rather lengthy reading, and I encourage you to follow closely and listen carefully to what God Himself declares to us this day. Matthew 9, verse 35, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. 
The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts. No bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, And father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say it in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come 
to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now there is plenty in there, is there not? And that is why I am thankful we have today and the next two Sundays to tackle Matthew chapter 10. When we study a portion of Scripture, very important that we approach it, approach it, following what we call the rules of biblical interpretation, the rules of hermeneutics. And so I want to do this just briefly. I want us to think in terms of the book, the book of Matthew. Then I want us to think specifically of the chapter itself, chapter 10, and then hone in thirdly on the section that is really going to occupy our attention these three Sundays. So firstly, the book of Matthew. There are five sermons, major discourses in Matthew's gospel account. That is how the book is to be unpacked. That is how it is to be interpreted. That is how it is to be studied and understood. It is easy to identify these five major sermons because they each end exactly the same way when Jesus had finished. When Jesus had finished these words, when Jesus had finished these parables, when Jesus had finished giving instructions. And so the first sermon, we've already covered it. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. That's sermon number 1. The second sermon is right here, Matthew chapter 10. The third sermon, the parables in Matthew 13. The fourth sermon, chapter 18. And the fifth and final sermon together, chapters 24, 25. There's that key phrase that ends each of those sermons, when Jesus had finished. And you put these five sermons together, and we have the content of what the Lord Jesus proclaimed as He went about from every town, every village, every city, proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in each of these sermons, He has something different to say to emphasize concerning the kingdom of heaven. So there's the book of Matthew. And the book of Matthew, as it hangs, as it rests on these five big, major discourses. That's the book. Now, the chapter itself, chapter 10, and this sermon in particular, how are we to understand it? It's pretty straightforward. The Lord Jesus does three things. Are you ready for these? If we get this, we can get our minds around the content of chapter 10. Firstly, He commissions His disciples 
to preach the gospel to the Jews. And we have that in verses 1 through 15. And I'm going to come back next week and make some comments on those verses, but not today. The second thing he does is this. He commissions his disciples to preach the gospel to the world. That begins in verse 16 and goes as far as verse 25. And we'll make some comments. We'll look at it a couple of Sundays from now. The third thing the Lord Jesus does is this. He equips His disciples to face opposition. And this is the main point of the chapter. He commissions them and sends them out during His earthly ministry to preach to the Jews. He's going to send them out again toward the close of His ministry, and they're going to take the gospel, yes, to the Gentiles and to the uttermost regions of the earth. And the Lord Jesus makes it clear, look, my, my disciples, my brothers, as you fulfill this mission, as you fulfill this calling, as you go and as you preach, you can expect to be received and treated exactly as the world has received and treated me. You're going to experience opposition. Some of you are going to experience harsh, harsh, horrific persecution. And men will hate you on account of me. And the Lord Jesus knows His disciples are going to need a little shot in the arm. They're going to need a little word of encouragement. They're going to need a little, you know, impetus to keep them going when the days are dark and the valleys are deep and there's no end in sight and opposition is all around them and they're being rejected, they're being ridiculed, they're being ostracized. And this is what the Lord Jesus gives them beginning in verse 26 then. The third thing He does in this chapter, He equips them to face opposition. It begins in verse 26. And it goes all the way through to the end, verse 42. So you've got the book, right? We understand it, Matthew. You've got the chapter and exactly what's going on here. Now this section itself, verses 26 right through to 42, how does the Lord Jesus equip the disciples? How does He encourage the disciples and by extension encourage and equip us as we too on occasion encounter opposition. The Lord Jesus essentially makes three points. Are you ready? Here they are. We're going to tackle the first today, the second next week, the third the week after that. First point is this, fear God above all else. If you want to persevere in the face of opposition, you need to be clear on this. Fear God above all else. That's verses 26 through 33. The second point is this. If you want to persevere when the going gets tough, love God above all else. That's verses 34 through 39. And his third point in verses 40 through 42 is this. If you want to endure the hostility that is coming, well then serve God above all else. Fear Him above all else. Love Him above all else and serve Him above all else.
And so today we come to his first point. We're going to just restrict our focus to verses 26 through 33, and we're going to wrestle them with what it means to fear God above all else, or in the language, the words of Ed, Ed Welch, what it means to focus on God who alone is glorious, that our fear of God might eclipse our fear of man. And the Lord Jesus, what He does basically is He gives us three reasons why God is awesome and glorious. And it's easy to pick these reasons out of the text because three times He utters the command, fear not. And so look at the start of verse 26. So have no fear of them. And he's gonna, that's going to lead into reason number one. Look at the start of verse 28. And do not fear those. That's going to lead into reason number two. And look at verse 31, the start of it, fear not. So three times he knows his disciples are going to face this temptation. He knows this problem is going to arise, and he knows that when men are bigger in our sight, in our perception than God, then the fear of man will take hold, and it will be a snare. So three times he says, fear not, fear not, fear not. Why? Because God is awesome and glorious. And here are three reasons. Reason number one, do not fear man because God's Word is indestructible. That's what we have in verses 26 and 27. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear man, because God's Word is indestructible. Eternity will set everything straight. Eternity will set everything right. Are you familiar with Robbie Burns? the old Scottish poet, what was it, the best, the best laid plans of mice and men oft go awry. Wasn't that? He wrote this poem, the best laid plans of mice and men oft, oft go awry. And he wrote this poem, this is back in the 1700s, he was out plowing his field one day, and as he had the furrow in the soil, and being pulled by the donkey, the horse, I don't know, whatever, and he was furrowing and tilling the ground, he, he turned up a, a mouse's house, nest, just below the surface. He didn't see it coming. He had no idea it was there. He was on top of it before he saw the mice scurrying and the nest completely ruined, destroyed. And later that day, he was beside the fire in his home, in his cottage, and he was thinking about this, and just uh, this, this poor mouse, and the energy, and the time, and the effort that this mouse had expended building its little house in its little burrow there in the ground. And in a moment, without any warning, completely beyond the mouse's control, turned up and destroyed. And he thought to himself, how, how like men, uh, whether you're a mouse, something small and insignificant, or a man, something significant and great, uh, how like life that is. Uh, we can plan, we can have our dreams, we can make our lists, we can make our resolutions, 
and we can have these grand dreams and plans and goals as to what our lives are going to look like. But uh, the best laid plans of mice and men go oft awry. You know, you think, for example, um, next Sunday you decide you're, you know, imagine there's no COVID restrictions. Next Sunday you're planning a picnic. And you're going to have a picnic here in the local park. And you've invited a bunch of friends. It's going to be fabulous. Uh, that, picnic, that picnic rests on contingencies, does it not? It's contingent on the weather. If it rains, it's canceled. It's contingent on people showing up. If they don't show up, it's spoiled. It's contingent on your car starting that morning. It's contingent on 101 circumstances, many of which we don't even think about or aren't even aware. We can plan, we can plan, we can plan. But all of the contingencies, all of the factors that come into play, and if one of those contingencies isn't met, our plans are ruined. As a matter of fact, thinking of COVID, thinking of this past year, if we have learned anything, I hope we have learned this, that the best laid plans of mice and men go off to awry. Many of us had plans to travel. Many of us had plans related to business and employment and everything else. Uh, plans related to weddings. Uh, plans related to other celebrations and milestones in life, and all of it completely turned on its head. If the past year has taught us anything, I pray it is this, we don't control anything. We're not in control. We can make our plans, but these plans are contingent on circumstances, ultimately way beyond the grasp of man. Hear this, friend, God is not like that. There are no contingencies when it comes to God's plan. His plan rests upon unrivaled power, unfathomable knowledge, and unsearchable wisdom. Nothing is covered, says the Lord Jesus, that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. God has a plan for the ages. It is called the summing up of all things in Jesus Christ. And there are no contingencies. And therefore, His disciples are to proclaim in the light and proclaim from the housetops precisely and exactly and fully what the Lord Jesus has entrusted to them. We can proclaim the truth. We can proclaim the gospel. We can make known the will of God. And we can do so free of the fear of man. Because we know whatever opposition we experience now, however unpleasant it might be in the current, eternity will set all things straight. Patrick Hamilton was a Scottish reformer young man, mid-twenties perhaps, this is 1526, 1527, and off he went as a young man to the continent, I think he was in Germany or Switzerland at one of the universities, and studying. And while there, a friend, a colleague, gave him some of Luther's, Martin Luther's works, writings. And he began to dabble in a little bit of Martin Luther's writings, and the Spirit of God converted him. He was saved. He came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, confessed faith in Christ, repented of his sin, 
he was immediately burdened for his homeland, Scotland, and he decided he wanted to go back to, to witness and testify to family, to friends, to colleagues. And he knew he was in for a hard time. He knew what was the governing, the prevailing mindset back in Scotland in the early 1500s. But off he went. The year was 1528. The man lasted six weeks before they burned him at the stake. Six weeks. You can go to, you can go to St. Andrews today and the memorial is still there. Patrick Hamilton burned at the stake, 1528. Six weeks. He knew what was coming. And as John Knox penned a few words concerning the biography, the life of Patrick Hamilton, he stated the following. Neither the love of life nor the fear of death could move him to swerve from the truth once professed. Why? Because he was absolutely convinced that God's Word is indestructible and God's will will be done. There is reason number one. The reason number two is this. Do not fear man. Why? Because God's wrath is incomparable. It brings us into the 28th verse. And do not fear. There it is the second time he utters that command. And do not fear those who kill the body. True enough, they can kill the body. True enough, they can hurt the body. We're not denying that. True enough, the believer might be called to, to suffer. And to suffer horrendously at times. But do not fear those who kill the body. Cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I do not like to speak on this subject. Um, even as I have prepared over the past couple of weeks in anticipation for today, and I've seen that word hell at the end of verse 28, um, just the unpleasantness that overwhelms and the, uh, the seriousness of this. Um, my great aunt passed away a few weeks ago, 102. And uh, where is she? I was on FaceTime with my mom and dad, so it would be my, my, for my father's aunt. And uh, I could see the, just the looks on their faces as they, you know, they shared the news. She's, she's passed. And just the it was my mom who blurted out, I don't know where she is. I don't know where she is. 102. She, she'd heard the truth oh, a thousand and one times. She grew up in the church in Scotland, and uh, she heard it from my mom and dad many, many, many times. Uh, this, this, is a, um, this is an unpleasant subject, hell. Um, and you know, you know what I was struck by? I, I went back this, just this past week, and I read the five sermons I mentioned them earlier, right, that Matthew, there are five major discourses. Just this past week, I just took a big chunk of time and read through the five sermons. Do you know the one theme, the only theme that is mentioned in each of the five sermons? It's hell. The Lord Jesus has more to say about hell than He does about heaven. I'm afraid many of us have air-conditioned hell in our day. Um, but here it is. For all its horror and weightiness. Do not fear those who kill the body. Oh, it's but tempor temporary. Fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Um, 
torment is the imagery conveyed whenever the Lord Jesus speaks of, of hell. Torment, why? Because in hell, the sinner loses all the comfort of earthly possessions. We read in Ecclesiastes 5, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Just as he came, he shall go. I remember it, seeing it years ago. There's probably still someone driving around with this license plate. I saw it maybe when I was 18, 19 years of age, and the Lord actually used it in a profound way in my, in my life. It was not a license plate. It was a bumper sticker, and the bumper sticker was this, the, the one with the most toys in the end wins. The one with the most toys in the end wins. You fool, this day I require your soul of you. We don't take anything with us, friend. And part of the torment of hell is the loss of all earthly possessions. We are stripped. The sinner is stripped of everything that they ever enjoyed in this life. It's a place of torment. Because in addition to losing all the comforts of earthly possessions, the sinner loses all the comforts of family and friends. Psalm 49, 17, when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory, in the context, it's his family. His glory will not go down after him. All family ties are lost in hell. In hell, no one will derive any comfort from spouse or children or close friend. These relationships will be meaningless. It's not just that they will be meaningless. They will actually compound the torment. Uh, it gets even more unpleasant, more, more serious, because you see, not only in hell does the sinner lose all earthly comforts, not only in hell does the sinner lose all the comfort of family and friends, in hell the sinner loses God. On the, depart, on the judgment day, uh, to hear that final sentence, depart from me, for I never knew you. And so hell is the full and final departure from God into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The sinner loses. The sinner loses the one in whose presence is fullness of joy. You know, if, if, if God is incomparable, that means the torment of hell, the loss of Him, is incomparable. If God is infinite, it means the loss of Him is infinite. If God is incomprehensible, it ultimately means that the loss of Him is incomprehensible. And we add to this torment that in hell the sinner gains the most intense pain imaginable. The sinner falls, we read in Hebrews 12, 29, into the hands of a God who is a consuming fire. Hell is an agony that never ends, a pain that never ceases, a sorrow that never subsides, a horror that never lessens, and a torment 
that never departs. We don't want to hear about that. Um, we need to hear about that. Because you see, it is against the backdrop of hell that the glory of the gospel shines brightest. It was John Piper who wrote the following, if I do not believe these awful truths so that they are real in my feelings, then the blessed love of God in Christ Jesus will scarcely shine at all. I think it's why the gospel is so weightless in so many of our lives. I think it's, I think it's a big part of the reason that why we're not floored by the glory of God's grace toward us in Christ Jesus, why we're not overwhelmed with the love of God, is because we have lost something of the horror, an appreciation of the horror of hell. It is the darkness of night that makes the dawn so uplifting, isn't it? It is the torment of pain that makes relief so comforting. It is the cold of winter that makes spring so encouraging. It is the loneliness of separation that makes reunion so refreshing. And it is the reality of hell that makes the glory of the gospel so overwhelming. I, was, I, I struggle with, um, I have some back issues and um, sciatic, right? And it comes on once every six or seven months. And if you've, if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. It, I'm, in my, I'm in the bed, I can't move. I mean, just fraction of an inch, any direction, the pain fires through my back, an entire body. And the last time this happened, I was feeling a little sorry for myself. And I remember in my mind actually saying these words, this is a living hell. I checked myself immediately. No, it isn't. This is nothing compared to hell. This is nothing compared to what awaits those who obstinately, willfully reject the Lord Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that is offered to all those who come to God through Him and through Him alone. Think it through, friend. When the Lord Jesus Christ climbed Calvary's cross, hell came to Calvary. That's what's happening. That's what's happening upon the cross. Hell comes to Calvary. There is that external darkness, right? For three hours, reflecting, mirroring that internal darkness of the soul, whereby the Lord Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the cry of the damned. It's the cry of hell. And hell comes to Calvary that day, and the Lord Jesus Christ swallows it whole. Hallelujah. I mean, this is life. This is everything that upon Calvary's cross, the Lord Jesus Christ becomes a curse for us. Upon Calvary's cross, the wrath of God, His righteous indignation is poured out upon Jesus Christ. That at Calvary's cross, hell comes with all its wrath and fury 
Oh, and he swallows it whole. And as the great hymn writer declared, he leaves nothing but the love for me. Are you there, friend? Are you feeling it? I mean, this is it. This is the gospel. Oh, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I'm just taking a little journey down memory lane here in my mind. I'm going back. I'm maybe in my early 20s. And the church where I grew up, we used to have this door-to-door ministry on a Monday night. And we'd go out two by twos and just, you know, knock on doors, make people aware of the church, maybe leave them with a gospel tract if they were willing. And on this particular Monday night, it was my dad and I, off we went, the two of us, and we'd visited a few homes, and we had just stepped up the driveway of this next home, and the owner of the house straight out that front door, screen door slamming behind him, yelling at us, he knew who we were, what right do you have coming here, shoving your religion down my throat? And we just turned, and off we went. And my dad quietly whispered to me, he says, Son, this is something you're going to have to come to grips with, and the sooner you come to grips with it, the better. Son, if I had the cure for cancer, right now in my pocket, I had it. The cure for cancer. And I kept it to myself. Son, what would you think of me? You would despise me. My friends, we have the gospel. We have the good news, the greatest news, the most glorious news. That judgment is coming. A day of reckoning is drawing near. And men and women, as Paul tells us in Romans 2, are gathering up. They are storing up for themselves that wrath, that judgment which will appear in the day of God's righteous indignation. And we have the gospel. We have the good news that there is salvation for all who come in childlike faith, simplicity of faith. You know, when your child calls for you in the middle of the night because the thunder blast goes, right? She's three years old. She's in the next room. All of a sudden, you hear the thunder goes, Mommy, Daddy. You know, you think you're, they're out, you're, you're, you're teaching them how to ride a bike, and the training wheels have just come off, and little Charlie, you think he's doing well, but he goes around that bend, hits some gravel, down he goes, immediately calls for you, doesn't he? Or he, he climbs up into your lap, three years of age, there you are, in the chair in the living room, climbs up into your lap and just kind of cuddles in there. You know when our children engage with us like that, do you know what we're seeing, friends? We're seeing the way into the kingdom. That's the way into the kingdom. Childlike faith whereby we simply call out. We call out to God. And we call out to God on the basis of what His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has done. And with simple trust, childlike trust, simple childlike faith, We put it all on Christ and turn away from our self-righteousness, confess our sins, and simply declare, oh, Father, receive me, receive me, and receive me for one reason, one reason alone, Jesus Christ. Oh, John Wesley, there he is in the the late 1700s, early 1800s. He was preaching a mile a minute over there in England. He was in London. And he was in the Church of England, and many of his fellow clergymen did not like him. They did not appreciate John Wesley. I think it was a little bit of jealousy because of the crowds that were being drawn to him, right? And uh, they wouldn't give him a place to preach. 
They wouldn't let him stand up in their pulpits, the clergymen in London. So he couldn't find a place to preach. So he went to the city of Epworth where his father had been rector. He thought, surely in this place I'll be able to, to preach. No, the, the local minister locked the doors. You're not welcome here. What did John Wesley do? He went out to the graveyard, found his father's tomb, stood on it, and preached. Oh, they came from miles around, miles around. He soon returned to London. He purchased a foundry, right, where they used to make ammunition. Still there today, Wesley's Chapel. And there he preached, and they came by the thousands. And Wesley declared, I desire, oh, I desire to have both heaven and hell ever in my eye, while I stand on this isthmus of life between two boundless oceans. Oh, do not fear man. Why? Because God's wrath is incomparable. The third reason is this. Do not fear man. Why not? God's love is immeasurable. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. And so I like to think as the Lord Jesus uttered these words as He expressed this thought, there goes these sparrows just flying overhead. Look at the sparrows, two of them for a penny. They're worthless. And get understand this, not one falls to the ground apart from my Father. He doesn't merely mean that not one falls apart from my Father's knowledge. He means one does not fall apart from my, God's, my Father's absolute sovereignty. That even the death, even the falling of something so seemingly worthless and insignificant is governed, superintended by my heavenly Father Himself. And the hairs on your head, as He speaks to the disciples, the very hairs on your head, my Father has numbered them all. Every circumstance, every condition in your life right now. It's not only that my Father knows of it. It's not merely that He is aware of it, but my Father governs it all, for all things are from Him, through Him, and to Him. Are you not of more value than many sparrows? Oh, do not fear, man, because the love of God is immeasurable. He does not love us begrudgingly. He loves us lavishly. John tells us, John 13, verse 1, that having loved His own who were in the world, the Lord Jesus, what did He do? He loved them to the end. He loved them completely. He loved them fully. And as Spurgeon reflected on that thought, he penned the following, Oh, Christ was upon the cross. He was upon the cross, bleeding, dying, looking down on the people, betraying Him, forsaking Him, denying Him. And in the greatest act of love in the history of the universe, He stayed. And he held on to 
us. Oh, the love of God is immeasurable. The love of God as poured out in Calvary's cross, whereby even the Lord Jesus states in verse 32, so everyone who acknowledges me, everyone who confesses me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. On that day, that coming day, oh, what will it mean? Oh, the immeasurable love of God. What will it mean with knees trembling, knees knocking on that day when we stand before His throne? And in our minds, we survey our lives. And we're not too thrilled with what we see. And we know we have nothing to bring. Oh, to hear the Lord Jesus confess, publicly declare before His Father, this one belongs to me. This one belongs to me. Oh, my friend, that is life. I was visiting a young boy. This is maybe oh, five or six years ago, 13 years of age at the time. He suffered from terrible asthma. And uh, this particular bout was so bad, they had to rush into the hospital in Fort Worth, Texas. I drove up there to, to see him, got into where he was hooked up to all these machines. He couldn't say anything, but there he was. I think he was hooked up to what's called a nebulizer. And it just looked so uncomfortable, attached to his mouth and nose, covering everything. And it was just pumping, I don't know what kind of drug, into those lungs because they were all constricted. But just by moment by moment, minute by minute, you could see that constriction just being alleviated as those drugs poured into his lungs, whereby eventually after an hour or two, just the gasp and the ability to breathe on his own. Oh, that's the gospel, is it not? That's, that's coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that is taking to heart what it will mean on that judgment day to hear the Lord Jesus declare publicly over us, this one belongs to me. Oh, the incomprehensible, the immeasurable, and the unfathomable love of God. Oh, fear not. Fear not those who persecute you. Fear not those who oppose you. Fear not those who can kill the body. Why not? Because God's Word is indestructible. God's wrath is incomparable. And God's love is immeasurable. You know, my friend, we need to hear that. We need to hear that not just as we perhaps this day are facing opposition. We need to hear that perhaps this day we're feeling weary. Perhaps we're just feeling worn out, and we're done with the COVID, we're done with the restrictions, we're done with life as it is. Perhaps we're facing problems in the home, struggles at work, wrestling with sin, and we're just feeling beaten down. We're just feeling overwhelmed, and the knees just, they're beginning to give, and we just feel like we're being crushed. Oh, my friend, God's Word is indestructible. God's wrath is incomparable. And best of all, for those who know the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, God's love is immeasurable. Our Heavenly Father, help us by Your Spirit to take these things to heart this day. May we be encouraged and strengthened in the faith. And may You be glorified and exalted in Your people, we pray. In Christ's most matchless name, amen.
Church, let's stand together.
you so much for the joy just to be able to gather, to be able to sing the gospel, Lord, to see the gospel and to hear your word preached. Father, thank you. Our response is just with grateful hearts, and we thank you for our Savior. In his name we pray these things. Amen. Church, it's been good to be together. We'll see you next week, either here or online. God bless.